Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, may the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his holy word. In the passage before us, Paul writes, in a sense, two letters of recommendation to the church at Philippi. But it would be a mistake for us to think about this passage as some kind of biographical sketch of two first century Christians. When you write letters of recommendation, you think not simply about the people involved, but also the task ahead. What is it that you're recommending the person for? As a philosophy professor, I do in fact write uh, letters of recommendation, and I always try to say only what is true, but I also want to think about what would best serve the candidate for a particular job, internship, graduate school, whatever. So if the student is looking into uh, working for a multinational company, then should I emphasize that he's a really good baker or that he's fluent in Chinese, right? So how you tailor your letter of recommendation tells you what it is you think is important about the fit between the candidate and the job. So what is the job that Paul is recommending these men for? It's nothing less than gospel ministry. And he recommends Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians with a view to them being honored in those positions. And in doing so, Paul then offers insight into what he wants to set forward as things commendable for this particular kind of work. And I think that we can think about this passage uh, under three headings. First, is it up here? Yeah. First, gospel workers pursue the welfare of others. That's what we see in Timothy. That's the account of Timothy in verses 19 to 22. Timothy pursues the welfare of others. That's what gospel workers do. Second, with Epaphroditus, we see that they participate in the work of the gospel. They're not lone rangers trying to parachute by themselves behind enemy lines. Gospel workers work in teams. And then third and finally, Paul wants the Philippians to both be encouraged by and to encourage gospel workers. So those are our three headings. Pursue the welfare, participate in the work, and provide encouragement. 
So first, pursue the welfare of others. We see this in verses 19 to 22. Paul commends Timothy to the Philippians because Timothy is genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. He does not seek his own interests, but he seeks the interests of others. His faithfulness to the work, his his success in the work also, has not made him proud or puffed up. He has worked alongside me, Paul writes, as a son with a father. As a son with a father. So Paul commends Timothy by way of contrast. Sometimes you do this. I'll actually say in a letter, uh, this is the very best student I have ever had. You can only say that once, right? Until you, you know, maybe five years later. But, it, but you do commend people by way of contrast. And Paul does that here. Verse 20 for I have no one like him. He's the best in his class who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Why? Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul commends Timothy by way of contrast. Some are warm for their own success, but they are cold to the concerns of Jesus. Not Timothy. Timothy's heart is aflame to Christ. What concerns Jesus concerns Timothy. And in this way, I think that Timothy, in his own small, sinful way, is an example of what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God and did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself. So Jesus, of course, Timothy is no Jesus, but Timothy in his own way walks in the steps of his Savior, just as Jesus did not look to his own private interest, but to the common good of us all going all the way to the cross. So to Timothy... Weak and fallen though he is, follows that same mindset to look to the interests of others. Now, not everyone is like Timothy. I don't need to tell you that. There is a remark that Gary Williams, who's a theologian in England, he once made about Calvin and uh, Calvin writing in a letter said something like this is the Brucean version. So this is when Calvin, this is not what Calvin said, but this is the Brucean embellishment. Um, Calvin felt so lonely in the work. He was over, overworked, but uh, he had a sidekick. And to a friend, John Calvin wrote, basically, he didn't even think about gospel work in his dreams. Like it was serving, serving the Lord was so far from his mind, and this was a minister. Serving, serving the Lord was so far from his mind that, that I don't think even in his dreams he thought about gospel work. Closer to heart in the, in the New Testament, Demas was one of, of uh, Paul's inner circle In Colossians 4.14, Demas is mentioned alongside Luke, the beloved physician. But something happened, and Paul makes that clear in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, he writes, in love with this present world, has deserted me. But not Timothy. Timothy's different. Timothy looks out for the interests of others. He's concerned for the welfare of others. Now, excellence in any work can tempt one to pride. 
But not Timothy. Timothy serves alongside Paul with humble, solicitous affection as a son with a father. And Paul's regard for Timothy seems to have no limits. When he writes to him directly in 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. When he commends Timothy to the Corinthians, Paul says, that's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And indeed, Timothy is by Paul's side when he's writing this letter to the Philippians. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Timothy is his right-hand man. And Paul, notice, commends Timothy to the Philippians, even even though they know him already. Verse 22 of chapter 2. But you know Timothy's proven worth. You know him. How could they know him? Well, in Acts chapter 16, if you remember Paul's, uh, shall we say, uh, less than glorious beginning in his Philippian work. There he is, Paul and Silas, in 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 a Philippian jail. If you remember this, they're beaten with rods. They're cast into prison. You may well forget that, I certainly did actually, but you, you may well forget that, that uh, there were people there who weren't put in prison. So in Acts chapter 16, right before they get to Philippi, they pick up Timothy and they take him with him with them to Philippi. And in fact, Acts chapter 16 is the moment when Luke, the writer of Acts, switches from third person, they do this, they did that, to first person plural. When we embarked from Troas to sail and to eventually make the way to Philippi. So, so Luke is there too. So Paul is sending back to the Philippians somebody that they know. And yet he still finds the occasion to commend Timothy publicly. It's striking. Here's a man who's genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Now, it seems in our day that there's so few leaders in the church, in politics, in business that actually care for the welfare of others and not their own private advantage. That when we see it displayed, it awes, it amazes us. The fight is here. I need ammunition not a ride. That is what President Volodymyr Zelensky was reported to have said when he was offered a ride out of Ukraine. I don't need safety. I need ammunition. And this past Wednesday, Zelensky, when he addressed the U.S. Congress, he said, he began his speech in Ukrainian, I assume. I mean, I don't know Ukrainian, but it sounds like Ukrainian. Um, But he finished in English. He said in English, strong doesn't mean big. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world, for human rights, for freedom, for the right to live decently and to die when your time comes and not when it's wanted by someone else, by your neighbor. Now there's a man who is pursuing the welfare of others. And of course, we must pursue the welfare of others in these practical ways. 
caring for people's physical, emotional, and financial needs. But we love people best when we point them to Jesus. We love people best when they tell, we, we tell them the good news of salvation. Because after all, you can recover from your sickness, but you'll still die. You may have enough financially for retirement, but one day your kids will be fishing through your knickknacks on the way to the, the dumpster and recycling bin. And you may be sad now, and if you are, I hope you're happier tomorrow, but joy and sorrow are just part of the mix of this life. And the question is, are you trusting in Jesus now for the life of the world to come? Let's remember the fight is here. We need biblical ammunition, not a ride. And some of us need to be Timothys to others. And some of us, if we're honest this morning, need someone to be a Timothy to us. And so let's pray for wisdom and let's give thought about how we can pursue each other's good. That's the first point. Pursue the welfare of others. That's from the life of Timothy. The second is participate in the work of the gospel. We see this in verses 25 to 28. This is with Epaphroditus. Paul commends Epaphroditus for his willingness and his ability to work well with others. Ministry requires not just good alone time. Ministry requires working well with people, coming alongside people. And Epaphroditus does this in a remarkable way. Now, Epaphroditus is actually a common name in the time of the New Testament. It's not so common today. I've never met an Epaphroditus, but it's a common name. And we know very little about this particular Epaphroditus. But we do know that he has been the Philippians' messenger to Paul. That's what Paul tells us in, in chapter 2, verse 25. We um, hear him speak of Epaphroditus being a good co-laborer in three different ways in verse 25. If you look at that, he calls Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. J.B. Lightfoot on this verse, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, observes that the three words are arranged in an ascending scale, common sympathy, common work, common danger, and toil and suffering. He's my brother. He sympathizes with me. He's my fellow worker. He's willing to do what it takes to get the job done. He's my fellow soldier. He is ready to go to battle for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is willing to expose himself to danger, even as, remember, Paul has shown himself in a Roman prison, willing to expose himself to danger too. And just as Timothy, I think, in a very small and fallen way, shows the way of Jesus in his desire to look for the interests of others, I think that Epaphroditus remembers, resembles Jesus in his willingness to do the work, even to the point of death. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says that Jesus humbled himself, um, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, let's be very clear. Epaphroditus did not die for my sins. Epaphroditus did not die for your sins. Epaphroditus didn't even die for his own sins. Jesus paid it all. But Epaphroditus shows a willingness to labor even to the point 
of death. And it is commendable. Paul commends him for his loving partnership in gospel work. This may be something that surprises you. It surprised me as I was reflecting on the passage this week. After all, Paul is an apostle. So kind of in the back of my mind, I, I uh, thought that he would always have a, a sunny disposition. The Lord in his grace has given me a sunny disposition. Uh, but, in, but it wasn't always that way. I think that is a, a fruit of the gospel in my life. But in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, we should remember that the Apostle Paul says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So here is a man. Here's a man who is ready to die. He's ready to die and go and be with Jesus. And even Jesus himself wept. So it's appropriate that the church in Philippi would send to Paul a someone that everybody knew was full of love to come alongside the apostle, to encourage him, to, to, to support him, to serve him, to care for him. Well, Paul was struggling. Epaphroditus was there to help. But then Epaphroditus, the, the helper, fell ill, even to the point of death. And compounding Epaphroditus' sorrow was his knowledge that there were people in Philippi who were concerned about him. It's one thing to think that you're dying. It's another thing to sorrow over the fact that there are people who are in anguish that you are dying, that those you love are weeping at the prospect of your death. And Paul uses a very uncommon word to describe the distress that Epaphroditus faces. It's a word that Mark and Matthew use to describe the anguish of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an unusual word, but it means that Epaphroditus was beside himself with sorrow. And Paul was too. Epaphroditus, the one to comfort me in my own sorrow, he's going to die. But God was gracious. Verse 27. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus was a partner in the work of the gospel. He participated in the full life of Paul's ministry. Sympathy, work, fighting, whatever, was, whatever needed was needed. Epaphroditus was there. And he's commended for his deep affection for the Philippians. Not every minister is like this. Someone told me years ago, someone told me years ago of a tra- of training that he went to. And there was an extremely well-known minister. If I named him, everybody would know his name. And in preparation for this weekend with this celebrated minister, he was told, now don't try to have a conversation with him. So he's going to speak. But in between the different sessions, don't approach him, don't talk to him, just let him be. At the time, I don't remember what I thought, but kind of trying to remember my attitude at the time, maybe I thought, wow, the guy is just so deep that it's like he gets off the stage from speaking and he's walking back to his hotel room and there are all these deep thoughts inside him that like he can't be bothered with chit chat. 
right? It's just like, it's, he's, so, he's so deep. But Paul's praise of Epaphroditus makes me think differently about that situation. Epaphroditus is not commended for being a celebrity preacher. He's commended for being a gospel partner. And that's what we should all strive to be, people who participate in the work of the gospel. Some of you are commendable gospel partners. And I'm not going to pull a Paul and mention you by name, but you impress me with your willingness to roll up your sleeves and get to work, to do what needs to be done. Thank you. And we all need to be in each other's lives. Sometimes we need to be like family, coming alongside each other. Sometimes fellow workers doing what needs to get done. We all need to invite friends, family, and co-workers to the outreach piano concert here at the church on April 8th with Michael McHale. We need to work together. I can't invite your neighbors. It'd be very odd if I, I mean, I guess I could, but it's better coming from you. Would you come and hear this great Irish pianist April 8th at Covenant Church? We need to be co-workers. And sometimes we need to fight for each other. We need to be willing to suffer financially to help each other. We need to be willing for our reputation to take a hit. All because of our willingness to stand together as we stand for Christ. And we also, even in the midst of all this, we should recognize our limitations. I found great comfort this week thinking about verse 26. For he, that is Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Church, I long for you. I really do. I sometimes feel the desire to be with you in everything that you do as I express that as anxiety. But I've realized this week it's actually because I fail to recognize my own limitations. I can't drive to Salem Springs and be a philosophy professor and a director of a center and be with you at every moment. But it's a good thing that I long for you. It's a good thing that time limits my ability and not a lack of affection, right? It's a, and so if you, if you struggle, if you say, oh, we, we need to have those people over, or I wish that I had been able to bring that person a meal, or I could have taken him to coffee, we can comfort ourselves that it's good that we long for each other because we love each other. We are brothers and sisters. We are fellow workers and fellow soldiers. And indeed, we are friends. So we pursue the welfare of others. We participate in the work of the gospel. And third, we provide encouragement to gospel workers. Provide encouragement to gospel workers. Now, Paul offers encouragement to the Philippians in verses 23 to 24. And then he tells them at the end of this chapter to to offer encouragement to Epaphroditus. Let's, Let's consider both encouragements. So first, Paul offers encouragement to the Philippians themselves. Notice in this passage, he's offering to to send them three people, three people. First, he's now sending Epaphroditus. Indeed, I think that we can safely assume that Epaphroditus is actually the person, the man who carried this letter to the church in Philippi. The church has trusted 
the church has trusted, the church in Philippi trusted Epaphroditus to deliver a gift to Paul. That's what we learn in Philippians chapter 4. And so now Paul is entrusting Epaphroditus to take his letter back to them. And he also, verse 23 of chapter 2, promises to send Timothy. And, and Paul says that he's waiting until he hears the results of his own trial. He's hoping that, that Timothy will have good news of his release. So Timothy is person number two. Epaphroditus is number one. Well, who is person number three that Paul wants to send? Well, it's Paul himself. Seems as though he's optimistic and hopeful that he will be released from a Roman prison and be allowed to return to the church at Philippi. We have no indication that Paul's optimism is well-founded. Epaphroditus made his way to Philippi. Timothy may have followed him later. But we have every reason to believe that Paul's trip to Rome was his very last. But Paul provides encouragement to the Philippians in this letter. He's saying, look, I'm now sending Epaphroditus to you. And I'm going to send Timothy too. And I hope that that'll be with good news. And finally, I'm hoping to see you soon myself. So that's how Paul encourages the Philippians. Paul also tells them to encourage gospel workers. He encourages the Philippians to give Epaphroditus a hero's welcome. There may be a concern here from Paul's point of view. Perhaps the the Philippians think that Paul is sending Epaphroditus back because he's displeased with them. You know, you sent me Epaphroditus to try to help, and then he got sick and almost died, and here I am in a prison needing encouragement. So I'm putting him out with the recycling, right? So there could be a concern that's like, you, you sent me Epaphroditus, I'm, I'm sending Epaphroditus back over the net, right? I, I, and so Paul addresses this concern directly. Was Epaphroditus a burden to the very man we were trying to help? No. Not at all, verse 29. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I think that phrase, lacking in your service to me, suggests that Epaphroditus didn't fall ill from some sickness or he had a frail constitution, but rather that he overexerted himself that he was so helpful to Paul that he labored until he fell ill. And Paul tells them, you know, Epaphroditus was doing your work. He was your messenger. He was your servant. He did the work that you couldn't do. So you receive him with joy and you honor him. And Paul could be playing with words here when he says that, that Epaphroditus risked or gambled his life in order to do the, words, the, the Lord's work for them. One reason I assume why Epaphroditus is not a common name is that it is unquestionably a pagan one. Do you hear Aphrodite in Epaphroditus? So Aphrodite was the goddess of gambling. So someone could risk or someone could gamble and say Epaphroditus. That is to say, this is on Aphrodite. This is upon or at Aphrodite, hoping that the goddess would help him. Now, 
Calling for Aphrodite when you're gambling is just about as pagan as you can possibly get, right? It's don't do it, right? But Paul may be saying here tongue in cheek, oh yeah, Epaphroditus gambled, but he risked his life for Jesus. And risking for your life for Jesus means that you always win. You always have victory. And we ought to provide such encouragement to gospel workers. About verse 29, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. One commentator writes that Paul recommends Epaphroditus to the Philippians. So intent is he upon this, that all that approve themselves as good and faithful pastors may be held in the highest estimation. For he does not merely speak merely of one, but exhorts that all such should be held in estimation. For they are precious pearls from God's treasuries. And the rarer they are, they are so much the more worthy of esteem. And this, this passage is consistent with Paul's message everywhere. For in 1 Timothy 5.17, for example, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul takes multiple chapters to defend the honor and dignity of his own minister. We should hold gospel workers in high esteem, and we should encourage them. Now, I'm making this point because it's in the text, even though I confess that I feel rather sheepish about it because last time I checked, I am a gospel worker. And we are all too often presented with charlatans who say, honor me when they dishonor the Bible. Trust me when they've proven themselves nothing but untrustworthy. Defend me when they should rather be Condemned, But the fact that there are wolves does not mean that there are not shepherds. There are bad fathers and mothers, but we're still told to be obedient to parents. They're bad masters, but we're still told to be obedient to them. They're bad generals, but we are to obey our superior officers. Now, there is a caveat to this obedience. And Westminster Larger Catechism 127 makes that clear. We honor them with, quote, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels. So there's no instance when you should submit to anyone, including yours truly, if a person in authority is telling you to disregard what the Bible clearly teaches. But we need to be reminded that our world is deeply uncomfortable with authority, respect, and submission. And that's because our world hates God's authority and refuses to submit to him. So while we need to be on our guard against those who would use or misuse their offices for personal gain, we must also readily and happily honor those whom God has placed over us, those who pursue our welfare and participate in the work of the gospel. I don't have this in my notes, but I hope you all know that I honor Paul Sagan. He has been to me more than I could possibly imagine in terms of an encouragement to my faith and to my service in the gospel. Now, let me, let me say something. Usually I tell you at the start why it is that I title my sermon the way that I do, but a gospel legacy, I'll say at the end why I titled the sermon A Gospel Legacy. I'm using it here in the general sense, something that remains after you're long gone. 
Now, of course, and not making eye contact with the lawyers in the congregation, but legacy can also be used in a strictly legal sense as something designated by a will. But there's an older use of the word legacy in the political sense. A delegate or a legate speaks on behalf of another. So the legacy and that old sense that's now obscure would be a person who's commissioned to speak for another. And we don't use that way, the word that way, but if we did, I could say that Paul's legacy is in his legacy. His lasting contribution to the Lord's work is his, his investment in future delegates who will share the same message of the gospel. Paul describes his technique in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is, Paul commits the message of the gospel to messengers of the gospel, not just in print, but also to particular people. If even the author of almost half the books of the New Testament focused on particular people, he invested in them so much that he would name them by name in a letter, then how much more should we think about particular people that we can love and encourage this week? We, like Timothy, should seek each other's welfare. We, like Epaphroditus, should participate. We should be co-laborers in his work. And we should delight to encourage one another. I hope you delight and encouraging me. I want you to know that so many of you do. It is a great pleasure to encourage you too, Covenant Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the very great privilege we have to hold forth words of life to people, to tell them that they are more sinful than they could possibly imagine, but more loved by you than they could dream. Lord, we pray that you would work in us such great love for Jesus that the desires, worries, and cares of this world would fade away so that we may see clearly those in need and give the kind and gracious word at the appropriate time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.